Let's talk science. From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. MindWise! Welcome back to the research podcast. We are unfalsifiably speaking to you from Groningen, probably the most beautiful student city in the Netherlands, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And again, it's our fifth episode. I'm Marco. And as always, I'm Yavor. And I'm still Tassos. Hello. Good to be here. Spring is here in Groningen and the sun is chirping and the birds are shining. And Which it's a perfect means... time to talk about randomized clinical trials and experiments. Okay. W- wouldn't you agree? That's right. Don't turn off, though. Don't turn off, listener. Okay. <laughs> I want to start with a claim. And this claim might be a bit extreme or controversial, but you can judge for yourself. And Tassos, I would like to know if you think there's any sort of legitimacy to that claim. So here it comes. I think that most of us psychology students, after finishing their bachelor's degree, perceive RCTs, as we said, randomized clinical trials, or let's just say experiments. Controlled trials. Or controlled trials, yeah as the one and only gold standard of all research methodologies. Granted, some of our textbooks, they acknowledge the shortcomings of the RCT. However, I believe that the criticism that concerns RCTs, like the inherent lack of external validity, is often blunt and superficial. The the shortcomings of the RCT are presented more as minor flaws compared to its ability to establish causal relations and ensure high internal validity. So I claim that a psychology student, if forced to evaluate a research paper, is implicitly judging its quality, the quality of the research paper, based on its conditioning. And I further claim that most students leaving this university perceive RCTs to be superior to all other methodologies, instead of seeing it as an equally legitimate part of the researcher's diverse toolbox. What do you think about this claim? I think it doesn't have a strong basis in reality. I think I think the way we describe the different methodologies in at least this course, I, I don't want to speak for other courses, is in terms of identifying the shortcomings and the advantages of each individual method and accepting that each individual method, each individual experiment in and of itself, or I say experiment, I mean study, on its own, is incomplete and insufficient. And it's only when you have pluralism of methodology and pluralism of voices and pluralism of viewpoints that you start getting a sharper or more complete picture of what is what is likely to be correct. There is a tendency to talk about the uh, about to talk about randomized controlled trials or randomized controlled experiments as being the gold standard but what we have to remember is what the context is the follow the, the second part of the sentence which gets i think forgotten or implied but in this implied version forgotten is that randomized controls trials are indeed the the best way to identify causal links between variables they have their limitations but if Causality is what you're primarily interested in. A randomized controlled trial or a randomized controlled experiment is your best bet. 
not your only bet and it's not as sufficient but it is uh, one of the best bets you have that's how i understand randomized control trials that's how i think we describe them in the course that's how i think the book describes them also we were surprised about the sheer amount of research papers and articles by psychologists but also mostly by philosophers of science that are deeply involved in this in this debate about the about RCTs and why it is the gold standard so why is there this debate out there online or in the journals in first place are there still researchers that perceive the RCT as a gold standard I don't personally understand the controversy uh, very much I don't think we I say we I don't think scientists I don't think scientists in general claim that uh, there's only one approach to designing studies and a lot of fuss is made about which one is better than the other without specifying the goals of a study once you identify the goals of a study then you can pick the best design or the most appropriate design but even then you have multiple choices multiple options that have limitations and advantages but to claim that everybody universally agrees that there is a hierarchy of methodologies uh, for all purposes i think that's a misleading it's a naive it's a sort of a uh, it, i think that is the blood statement i think that's where the misunderstanding comes from i think if you take the primary goal of research to be identifying causal links between um, finely controlled variables then a randomized control trial is a good uh, idea now don't get me wrong you can screw up your rcts by having poor operational definitions or bad um, uh, bad uh, designs in your methodology so it's not as if an rct solves everything you can randomly assign people in conditions but if what you do with these people in these conditions is nonsensical you'll get nonsense out of it also so you you said and this is true that randomized controlled experiments well they're their biggest advantage is that they show us some kind of causal relationship. And um, in order to see this causal relationship, we need to have controlled for all the other factors that might be influencing. That's right. And this usually depends on, well, our knowledge of which factors would influence this particular variable that we're interested in. And do we, in a lot of cases, know which which factors we should control for and how how much of uh, rct studies are clean in that case well causally one should remember that uh, one should remember not to judge a tool by the ability of the user you can as i said and I, i'm not going to make any claims or know any percentages of how many studies are done cleanly or correctly yeah. But it's certainly true that you can have an, a randomized controlled study that has a very low sample size. And when you have a very small sample size, the R part of RCT doesn't really work very yeah. well. That has nothing to do with the RCTs themselves. That has to do with the, the poor use of them. So if you want to have a good RCT, have a, a sample size that gives you adequate power um, to identify any effects that might be there. I want to add to that and also push the point of the critics just a little bit more. Let's say we have a sufficient sample size and let's assume we have sufficient knowledge of our population to actually then infer certain effects 
I want to quote David Rudman from Harvard University. He's a mathematician and he publishes a blog and one of the blogs is called The Smartest RCT Critic. I just want to quote him here. In sum, while non-randomized methods have problems of comparability within, randomized methods have them beyond. RCTs avoid messy questions about who to equate to whom during implementation, only to slam into those questions upon interpretation. I was struck by the symmetry when I first grasped it. The inherent complexity of the world being studied cannot be dodged. The, the very fact, the very substance of an experiment, of a true experiment, a randomized control experiment, is an artifact. It, there's an artificiality in it. It is an artifact. Of course, it doesn't generalize to, it, it's not designed to be a generalized tool in, in that respect. And we never teach them to be the end of everything. We teach them to be one aspect of your methodology. Remember, we talked about uh, two weeks ago, I think, on, a, on observational studies, how three times I think I mentioned that observational studies and observational experiments or field experiments are used to supplement lab experiments, which are inherently artificial in their nature, and to to find out the, the generalizability borders of these lab studies. There's nothing that is not to say that we have to dismiss lab experiments. We just have to interpret them mindfully and accordingly, acknowledging the fact that they are conducted in an artificial environment. Now, once you accept that, and once you accept the fact that you can conduct multiple artificial experiments in many boundary situations, and you can, uh, in many generalizability situations, and identify where they work and where they don't, or where you see the effects and where you don't, you get a much richer picture. Peeping through a hole in the wall is not going to get you the picture, no matter how nice the hole is. You have to look from uh, look at the topic from multiple uh, uh, viewpoints. And okay. those multiple viewpoints are the different methodologies. And a good scientist needs to be able to make the appropriate links and the appropriate predictions using multiple methodologies. I mentioned that in my very first lecture. Mm -hmm. You don't just use neuroscience um, uh, or neuroimaging data. You need to have behavioral data as well. You don't just have lab experiments. You need to have also field studies. You don't just do RCTs. You also need correlational studies by necessity. It's the multi, um, it's the plurality of methodology that really gives you confidence or, or, or solid statements about the world, so the, not the, individual yeah. methodologies. So the plurality of methodologies that you might use to come to a conclusion, to me, seems like a perfect ideal. However, could it be that the very fact that this debate is raging out there is because often um, they're not employed. And if we see, for example, big institutions like the National Health Institute or even the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, they would accept the approval of a certain drug only based on RCTs, but not only based on maybe a combined effort of observational studies, qualitative studies, etc. You can amount all to this. They would still only look at the RCT and see it as something, even though there might be shortcomings in there. So that, that there is a bias to, to favor the results of RCTs. I agree, it would be beautiful to have those multiple sources coming in, but this often in reality doesn't happen, does it? In the end, if you're talking about judging the efficacy of a drug 
a randomized control trial is your best bet because it does given given a good design right i mean we we use this as a as a as an assumption that the ict that we're talking about is designed well it has an appropriate sample size the the sample is properly uh, created so the people are appropriately sampled that the procedures are done in a double blind way etc 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 all of these are sanity checks they are ways of making sure that we don't create a false impression of what we see and what we hope to see and what we expect to see. So if your goal is to test a new drug, which by definition is we're talking about a, a, a causal relationship, then yes, you're not going to do an observational study in the field. That's not going to be sufficient because that is going to be marred by confounds, which are in uh, which will make your conclusions insufficient, inadequate, and incorrect most of the times. It's the fine control of the variables that the RCT, a good quality RCT, affords that give you the ability to make these judgments. And the presence or absence of controversies isn't always dependent on whether there is substance in the controversies, but whether it's an important topic on people. I still have some confusion. I would like to follow up on this. If, let's say, we, we have the situation that we're testing for a drug with an RCT, is the inherent lack of external validity that the RCT has means that it might be hard to generalize the effects that we found in the study. Yes. So if we're take, taking a drug research and see that it might have an effect or not, um, let's assume we have three conditions. One condition gets the SSRI, the other one gets a therapy, and there's a control condition. And if we now randomly assign depressed patients to it, first of all, of course, we have to categorize what we mean by, by depressed, um, what participants we include and don't include, maybe based on comorbidity, etc., etc. But let's say, let's just assume we know our sample based on their depression score. They are randomly assigned, and now we see an effect of the SSRI and the treatment and the control, or no, the, the baseline of the control group. This happens in our experiment. Is it valuable, even, because we might not be able to generalize at all? Because out there in the real world, a person that is depressed, who would seek therapy, might respond completely differently to this therapy than a participant who's randomly assigned to therapy even though in the real world he would never seek therapy. So my question is, even if a lot of those conditions are clean and, and the researcher is so careful, isn't there inherently something that we can't judge this causality at all? The, the truth of randomized control studies or, or well-controlled studies is that they, their aim is to identify the sole influence of whatever active substance or treatment you're interested in it's not in their interest to identify whether the participants choose this and how they are how they are affected by it or not you can do another study specifically looking at this effect you can you can have a more complex study that looks at whether uh, belief in um, in the in the efficacy of a treatment is an influence you can look at uh, the the uh, you can look at the effect of uh, seeking help in this particular case all of these are individual variables and they 
have their own individual effects and they interact with other variables to produce some kind of effect and some kind of behavior. Nobody would say from the RCT that this is the end of the story. It is, however, the beginning of the story. It is the best foundation to start considering this matter. But it's often the end of the story for approving a drug. Sure, but then that is not... But we have to not forget that the approval of a drug is not just based on whether it's uh, efficacious in the real world, but also whether it's safe, whether there are any uh, considerable side effects, whether there are whether there is a substantial benefit. And of course, we've done enough studies now to know that if you get a substantial benefit in the lab, then what you do is you put it in the real world and you continue evaluating it. This is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. The FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, for example, the Food and Drug Administration, continues monitoring these drugs afterwards. There are clinical studies that are done after a drug is approved by the FDA, and research studies continue. And there, those questions that you pose, which are excellent questions and very important to know about, will have the possibility of being answered. And our knowledge becomes less imperfect based on that. We never have perfect knowledge. In fact, most of the time we just have a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding of things. But our, our knowledge about this topic becomes less and less imperfect and more and more nuanced. But would, would you say it's ethical to... Well, for instance, we, we do a RCT and we see that a drug just, just causes this particular effect and it's a very positive effect. But it also creates all these other negative effects. The drug companies, they would like to... Well, they're just going to put all these other effects into the side effects category and sell their drug based mm -hmm. on the positive effect. And you said after the RCTs are carried out, they still continue monitoring what, hap what happens, but would it not be ethical to kind of experiment with a mass population when you know that the drug is not completely safe? There's nothing that is completely safe. Nothing at all. If we want to criticize the RCT's methodology, that's one thing, but I don't know if we can blame the RCT for, in many situations, being very susceptible to cheating, so to speak, the pharma industry, pre-screening and pre-treatment and excluding patients that might not respond to pl placebos or might respond to etc etc so again that might then and let's let's forget let's not forget to defend the poor rct and say also that it's the one design that is the least susceptible to this kind of behavior other designs are more susceptible to confounds they're more susceptible to misinterpretations they're more susceptible to uh affect experimenter and participant biases, etc. So if if the RCT receives so much flack, it's because it is there at the forefront. It does most of the work. Yes. They're but, there, RCT. We're here yeah. to defend you. And and often the fundamental issue is then not the purity of the methodology, but the complexity of our reality we live in. And well thanks for your patience answering these questions at least for me through dealing with these blogs and debates i have come to appreciate 
a little bit more that you know all these tools are available at the researcher's disposal because admittedly during the first year of my study I somehow put the RCT on a pedestal. Okay, so let's finish with something more pleasant. More pleasant than this? <laughs> this was fun. Okay. We're glad to hear that. <laughs> it was very fun. Yeah. Okay. A couple of rapid fire questions. What are your two favorite podcasts, except ours, of course, and yeah. why? Uh, 99% Invisible is my favorite podcast. It's um, it's a podcast about the uh, the layers of complexity under the world, the the details that really make the world beautiful. It's 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 an excellent show. Um, it's just the right length. It's just perfect. It's excellent quality. It's beautiful to listen to. After that, I have a lot of other podcasts that I listen to. I'll tell you my guilty pleasure. It's not uh, it's not something I admit openly all the time, but my guilty pleasure is a show that has been by now cancelled, but it's from National Public Radio in the United States. It's called Car Talk, and it's a um, it's a comedy show about car mechanics. I cannot describe it any better than this. If you know Car Talk, you know how excellent it is, and if you don't know Car Talk, hopefully um, uh, you'll try it out. Which one do you prefer, An Awesome Wave or This Is All Yours? This is all yours. This is all yours. Yeah. Why? It came out last year, right? 2014. And there were not many albums that I liked from that year. I told you last time about St. Vincent and it was really excellent. LJ just gives me a really good mellow vibe. I think that's the best way to describe it. Fair enough. Okay, last question before we enjoy the sun outside. How many emails do you receive from students every day? What percentage do you reply to? <laughs> from students or in general? Um, let's just say from, from students. You can also answer the, the general I question. get about... Hold on, let me tell you. So it's 4 o'clock. I have received 40 emails today. About 20 of them were from students. I think I've replied to 18 of them so far. Wow. Well, that's a good quota. Mm -hmm. It's terrible for me. <laughs> I, I guess. guess. Yeah, that was it. That was it. We've got the exams approaching. Um, statistics and social psychology first. And then followed a week later by our valued research methodology course. Yeah, Friday night party. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, as always, you can give us feedback and if you also maybe have questions concerning how to deal with your anxiety before the exams maybe tassos can help you with that <laughs> okay <laughs> see you next so. week bye. Bye, bye bye if you have feedback concerning this episode or want your own questions to be featured in upcoming podcasts please send us an email at mindwise at this podcast was a production of mindwise for the department of psychology at the university of groningen I did a little, little bit more lavender. <laughs>